Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Should birth be free? Many in our movement are advocating for healthcare systems to provide free birth programs for moms. Could this incentivize couples to have more children and foster a pro-family culture? This week, we dive into how the medical community, lawmakers, and the Catholic Church could explore the creation of these programs. Where are all the babies? The U.S. birth rate has been well below replacement level for decades. Why are couples reluctant to start families? How has contraception played a role? The case for free births. Why this could be the next pro-life priority with the illegitimate federal right to abortion gone as we work towards the ultimate goal of defeating abortion at all moments. A leading advocate of making birth free joins us to discuss. dive into this week's episode, an update from the group Catholic Vote. Days ago, the group filed a lawsuit against the FBI and the Department of Justice regarding the agency's repeated targeting of American Catholics. The lawsuit follows concerns raised by the arrest, trial, and acquittal of pro-life dad Mark Houck and the disinterested efforts by the Department of Justice to investigate the hundreds of attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers and churches. Now, Catholic Vote claims that the FBI and DOJ have been, quote, spying on Catholics and have demanded they release records pertaining to this activity. Catholic Vote President Brian Birch said, quote, Our weaponized and corrupt government agencies have demonstrated a pattern of contempt for justice and the rule of law by prioritizing partisan ideology and agendas over the protection of the American people. We are demanding transparency from our government and are determined to uncover just how high up the anti-Catholic bigotry goes. We'll continue to track this lawsuit. This week, we're tackling an important question. How can the healthcare system and those leading our country improve and incentivize people to choose life and have more children? Maybe giving birth should be free. There's a growing contingent of policymakers and pro-life advocates asking this question who believe that it's the logical next step to promote a pro-family society. This week, we'll discuss the feasibility of this idea and who could lead the charge to create free birth programs. Someone who's put a lot of thought into this and has written on it is Megan McArdle. She's a columnist at The Washington Post. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. I just want to start by asking you, do you think birth should be free? And can you elaborate on your view? Uh, I don't. And that's because, not because I'm against uh, doing things that help more babies come into the world, but I'm skeptical that this particular thing um, is, is the right move. And so the reason is, here's how I think of health insurance. Health insurance is for things that are rare occurrences, right? So if now, for example, if you have a baby who has serious health issues and spends a bunch of time in the NICU, uh, the neonatal intensive care unit, to a first approximation, no one could afford to pay for that. It, it can cost millions of dollars for a lengthy stay. And that's something that we cover with insurance, often with federal insurance, uh, sometimes with private insurance. But either way, it's because this is an expense that that no person can handle on their own. Similarly, if your house burns down, if you are in a car crash, these, these are rare um, but very big expenses that we try to handle by pooling the risk with other people who have insurance. Now, on the other hand, most people in their life are going to have kids. And, you know, there's no way to make that free. Someone has to pay for it. 
And in a democracy, that's probably going to mostly be the same people who are having the kids. You can pay for it through directly through your deductible and, and your employer-sponsored insurance or your government insurance, or you can pay for it indirectly through your taxes. But either way, it's it's not really free. Um, and I'm I'm on the other hand, I'm I'm also skeptical that this particular policy, you know, the biggest argument for it, I think, is that it will encourage more people to have babies. But I'm really I'm skeptical that the cost of the birth itself is what's deterring people. Uh, I think they're much more worried about the costs in their time, the cost of feeding and raising a child, educating a child and so forth. Those are the big costs that I think if you are looking for a policy that encourages more people um, to be less abortion minded and more um, more willing to bring their child into the world, then I think you've got to look at, at policies that attack those bigger costs rather than the cost of the birth itself. Hmm. I see. And I mean, I'm sure you know as well as I do that about 42% of um, births are already covered by Medicaid. My question to you, though, is if we could potentially afford this, do you think it would be a bad thing in addition to other programs? Um, what's the harm, I guess? Well, so I would say that there's a, a few harms. Um, and the first is that, you know, we have a bunch of programs we haven't paid for already. We've got a really big budget deficit. And so before we're ready to talk about new programs to do things, I think that we have to look at doing, take, for example, making sure that our old age entitlements are, are solvent, which is its own kind of pro-life program. Um, and to be clear, I'm not against paying for birth for women who can't afford to, right? I, I think that everyone sure. who is giving birth should have birth, should have that cover, be able to make sure that happens in a safe, you know, hospital setting where they can, they and the baby can be taken care of appropriately. I, we're just talking about the marginal people who probably have insurance, who can afford, you know, who are maybe worried about the deductible, but are not really worried about, am I actually, am I going to have to give birth to my baby, like in my closet, because I can't go to the hospital. I'm, I'm so, um, I should say that. So that's, one issue. Another issue I think is is that it is if you're looking at things that are to be pro-life to help more women um, make that decision that to to bring a child into the world, um, I don't think this is the policy I'd choose. Again, you know, if I have the money, the government money is limited. We can't we can't spend on every single thing we can think up. So if I have that money, is this the the program I want to choose, or do I want to choose something? with making sure that the uh, infant nutrition is better mm. with programs to help moms cope. Cause you know, especially if you're a, a single mom is unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of women facing that choice are going to end up as single moms. Um, I'm going to want to say, is there something I could do to help those women through those crucial early years when it's so hard to be on your own with a child? Um, I just don't think that this would be the program I would pick to mm. try to, and similarly for married families who are also deciding whether they want to have more kids. Um, I don't think this is the the program I would pick. If I was going to take those dollars, I would pick something that I think is going to deliver higher value in terms of helping more, more families make the decision to have another kid. Hmm, I see. I see. And you recently spoke in a panel on this, and you mentioned that there's a risk that a, if a policy like this were to be enacted, it would have more of a symbolic effect than an actual effect on on improving um, the lives of young couples who want to have kids. Um, I want to talk to you about the birth rate, though. You know, our, our nation's birth rate has been below replacement levels since the 1970s. So how do we fix this if making birth free isn't going to have the effect of incentivizing people to have kids? 
I think that that is a really tough question. <laughs> um, I wish I had an easy, oh, well, here's a three-step program. Look, <laughs> I think on the margin, we can look at ways that make uh, kind of workism, as, as a lot of advocates like to say, a little less hostile towards having children. Although I don't think that that's by any means the whole story. Nordic states are very friendly, have very family-friendly work policies, and they still have below replacement birth rates. So that's you know, that's one part of it. A lot of it, honestly, is it's the culture. And that's unfortunately, that's the hardest thing to change with policy. Um, and I say this, I should also clarify, like, I I got married when, I'm, when I was 37, and I don't have kids. So <laughs> I'm part of the problem that we are describing here, <laughs> to some extent. Um, but no, honestly, you know, I think that the, the culture that in, encourages delaying marriage and settling down until you're very, you know, you've got everything else lined up with your career that that is going to make mean that people have fewer children. Um, it's going to mean that more women miss their fertility window. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that those are really difficult questions, but they're not best addressed. Unfortunately, we love policy levers because policy is feels like something we can do. It's clear. Um, if we were going to look for a policy lever, I would I would look at, you know, things like the child tax credit. Um, but honestly, I think most of the work has to come at the cultural level, at the workplace level, not in the government level, because I don't really even think this is about family leave yeah. or it's about how easy is it to have a good career and leave to, you know, take the kids to Little League or, or get dinner on the table or all of those other things that parents want to do. Um, it's about how much do we do parents, especially American parents, feel like they have to invest in their kids in order to make sure they have a good start. I think you you really see this, at least in the upper middle class, this kind of toxic, I have to spend my entire, like, wake every waking hour coaching my child into being this little, like, combination Olympic star slash social justice activist mm. slash A student, uh, you know, plus prodigy at playing the lute so that they have the the best chance of getting into a good college. That really, I think, raises the costs of having kids and makes people less willing to to do that because it feels like it's, you know, this this Mount Everest that you have to climb. Right. All of that stuff is harder to address, but I think that's really where the 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 biggest movement is going to have to come on having a more pronatal um, policy, but a more pronatal natal society, which mm-hmm. I, like I'm very much in favor of. Sure, um, sure. But I think it's it's a, it's really tough. Right. Well, Megan McArdle of The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts on this. Really insightful. Thanks for having me. So why aren't young couples incentivized to have children? And how can we fix this problem? In order for the U.S. to maintain a healthy population, women should be having at least two children. In the 1950s, most women were having at least three children, oftentimes more. Now, the birth rate is a mere 1.66 births per woman. In a study conducted last year, some couples said they aren't having kids due to the cost of living. Others, the political situation in our country, but a large majority simply said they want to maintain their personal independence. We are now joined by Leah Labresco Sargent, an author with Other Feminisms, to shed some light on this. Leah, thanks so much for joining us. Mere decades ago, couples happily anticipated getting married and having children. Now many of them hold off on starting families, or they don't have children at all. This is a broad question, Leah, but but what's changed? 
important to note that people still want to have more children than they're having for the most part. It's not just a decrease in desire for children. It's people not being able to have the children they want. Um, and we talk often as though unexpected births are an enormous problem, and that's why abortion is pushed as a solution. But desired, unachieved births are a huge problem. That's not the kind of parenthood we seem to plan for as a policy matter. I see. And for the average couple, Leah, if you could shed some light on this, whose hospital and birth expenses are not going to be covered by Medicaid or their health insurance plan, how much does it cost to have a baby? Well, it's hard to say because, as is often the case, hospital prices are all made up. They'll put one number on your bill and it's not what your insurance pays, and it's certainly not what they expect you to pay if you're a self-paid person. You know, for the poorest 42% of Americans, their births are entirely covered by Medicaid. Uh, for most people with insurance, you know, it might go up to the cost of your deductible if you're unlucky, though in many cases it'll be $1,000 to $2,000. Mm. Um, but it really varies a lot. And I think what's hardest isn't so much even the cost of birth, since for many people it's a mild amount. It's the uncertainty. I'm still getting bills a year and a half after my daughter was born, and it makes it hard to know what I'm expected to pay and when I'm expected to pay it. Right, right. That's really helpful. And Leah, you've written a lot on this topic, so explain to me your thoughts on the idea of making birth free. Do you think it's a good idea? Are there other ways to encourage couples to start families? What are your thoughts? I'm certainly not opposed to it, but I don't think it's the highest impact way to help parents who's you know, worries about children are driven primarily by cost. Mm. Because again, the poorest mothers in America already have birth free. They have it free through Medicaid. And so the question is, what's a policy that will help get money into parents' hands, especially the parents who are most financially precarious? So I'm all for making birth costs predictable um, and I'm for lowering them for other parents. But if we just work on making birth free, we're not helping the poorest mothers in America I'm most in favor of cash transfers, where there's a baby bonus paid to every parent. And so the poorest parents still benefit from that program in a way they wouldn't from making birth free. Mm. And every parent can make their own decisions about what cost that can best defray instead of seeing the cost of the program just go straight into insurers' pockets. Mm. Very insightful. And Leah, in, when we talk about um, you know why people aren't having children, how do you think the modern feminist movement and contraception have played a role in this issue? I think one thing that's really hard is it's told people that maybe there's nothing wrong with their desire for children, but it's a desire that they shouldn't indulge, um, that children are kind of a capstone to your life where you need to get everything else in order first. And then there's the kind of lie of the biopharmaceutical industry that children can be put off indefinitely, mm. whether that's by egg freezing, relying on IVF later, and those you know, interventions aren't always ethical, and they often don't work. So we're hitting that first generation of women who froze their eggs and thought they were doing the best thing they could for their families, and finding out that means they aren't going to have the chance to have a biological family at all. Right, and that can be so tragic for, for couples. In general, do you see Catholic hospitals and healthcare systems offering solutions to this problem, maybe offering programs that could encourage couples to have more babies, making birth more affordable, making birth free? One thing I don't see Catholic hospitals doing that I'd like to is giving people really simple, clear information about what their birth will cost. Um, you know, a one-page thing that kind of explains before you go in. Because again, I think it's the uncertainty more than the cost itself that's really hard for families to figure out how to budget for. Mm -hmm. But a thing I do see Catholic medicine doing really well 
is addressing you know, that desire to have children as a holistic medical question so that women aren't being kind of pushed just towards the pill to cover up their fertility problems um, when people have irregular cycles, but have the benefit of NAPRA doctors to say, you know, if something's unusual in your cycle, we don't want to medicate it away so you can't see it. We want to ask questions about what's going on with your fertility so that whenever you're thinking of having children, you understand your body, you understand the constraints you're going through, and you just have the best possible medical help to be able to have a child naturally if that's possible for you. Right, right. Leah, I have one more question before I let you go. What's your advice to women who, women and couples, who might be grappling with the decision of pursuing a demanding career or becoming a wife and mother? They're really struggling with this. You know, I think the, it's, I won't say that it's easy to have both. Um, I think it's that no matter what you're thinking about when you want to time children or how many you have, a career that doesn't leave any room for a family doesn't leave any room for friends and doesn't leave any room to take care of your parents when they're old. So I'd like to see more men and women pushing back against totalizing careers, period. Um, because you know, even if you think you can delay having children, you can't delay the other requests people who you love will make on you. And you want a job that will let you take sick leave, let you take time off when your parents are old, struggling with Alzheimer's, when a friend breaks a leg and you want to care for them. You want a humane job, regardless of when you need it to accommodate children. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge on this. Leah Labresco, Sergeant of Other Feminisms. God bless you. Thanks. Thank you. Coming up, I speak out against the naysayers. Would it really be that difficult to make birth free? And we hear from a leading advocate of making birth free who will explain why, in his view, this would be beneficial for all, even those who aren't explicitly pro-life. All of this after the break. Welcome back to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. While many Americans seek ways to make birth more affordable, our government is still doing everything they can to promote abortion. The latest, the Biden administration is working to fund a national abortion hotline. That's right, Health Secretary Javier Becerra is working with Vice President Kamala Harris to create a secure line through which women could receive abortion referrals. HHS claims that the hotline will provide, quote, neutral, factual information. The hotline would potentially be funded via a grant. A website would also be created in tandem with the hotline to provide another avenue by which women can obtain an abortion. And for this week's Speak Out segment, making birth free seems like a daunting task to some, but the facts tell a different story. Let's assess where we could find the resources to fund these programs. Through Medicaid, the U.S. already finances about 42% of births in the country. To cover essentially all U.S. births, it would require an additional $40 billion of new spending. So how much does our government spend elsewhere? In 2022 alone, we spent $114 billion on transportation and more than $500 billion on, quote, clean energy. President Biden's American Rescue Plan costs nearly $2 trillion. Couldn't he spare some of that for the babies? But this isn't just on the government. What can the church provide? A recent report found that Catholic healthcare systems are growing in scope and influence. How will they wield this power? Shouldn't the church have robust programs for welcoming precious little children into the world? 
Imagine if a woman could show up at any Catholic hospital and give birth without having to pay out of pocket. Making birth free relies on reprioritizing what's important in our culture. Sure, having roads and solar panels is nice, but if we don't invest in programs to facilitate the birth of new generations, what's the point of it all? The healthcare Americans need isn't abortion, the killing off of our progeny. Healthcare must be focused on investing in the future of humanity. If we fail, there won't be an America left to fight for. Now, in this week's episode, we've talked a lot about the logistics of making birth free and what would need to change in our society to make this a reality. But what makes it morally right? People might tend to look at this as a strictly pro-life proposal, but is there anything truly controversial about it? Our next guest is a leading advocate of this proposal and a firm believer that making birth free will benefit everyone. Tom Shakley is the Chief Engagement Officer at Americans United for Life. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to be here, Prudence. Yeah, so you have described making birth free as an imperative for our movement and for the future of our nation. Why? Well, look, you know, we Catholics have been great defenders of the unborn. Uh, but now in this post-Roe era, it's incumbent upon us to provide the fullness of the church's teaching. So we've done great advocacy since before Roe v. Wade and throughout the unfortunate period of Roe in American history. But now we have a chance to show America, to show the world, that the church teaches that the state has a responsibility to protect and defend families. Mm. And so that means not just being against abortion, not just being anti-abortion, but being affirmatively for the building up, the strengthening of the family. And that's what Making Birth Free is about, is setting a new cultural standard for America and for the world about what it means for states not just to be indifferent to the good of human life, not just to leave it up to people or leave it up to states even to decide who gets to live or gets to die, mm -hmm. but ultimately to say that the state is here to promote the good of the family, the highest social good, the fundamental unit of society, as the church teaches. Right, and that's where society starts, right, with the family. Um, your group is advocating for federal legislation on this, Tom. Is there a precedent for that? You know, there is. Uh, Alan Carlson, who is a, a Reagan administration guy and a, an advocate of making birth free today, he's written a great piece uh, for the Institute for Family Studies, and he goes over the whole history of early 20th century American support for motherhood, for birth. Uh, we had a, a history of, of supporting motherhood and birth at a national level uh, in that early period of American history, that, that progressive era. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was a fundamentally good pro-family thing. So there's massive precedent in American history, um, uh, but there's also precedent throughout the world. You know, when we look uh, across Europe, um, you know, the Holy Father was just in Budapest in Hungary. Yes. And he cited the Hungarian pro-natalist and pro-family policies as a model for Europe, uh, for nations. And so we look at that precedent and we say, this makes sense. It makes sense to support the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And Tom, what's brought you to the conclusion that America can afford doing this, making birth free for pretty much everyone? Yeah, you know, uh, it sounds like a big idea. It sounds yeah. like, how could we possibly do this? Um, but when we look at what it costs, it's amazing. The cost is very, very reasonable. We're talking, if we were to make birth free for every American mother, every American family, we're talking about a cost that would amount to less than a, about 1% change to U.S. federal health care spending. Wow. Now, we might spend too much on health care, and we might spend too much at the federal level already, um, but to put that into context, that's a, a small dollar change relative to everything else we do, uh, but it would have massive positive transformational effects by putting the American family, American motherhood, children, squarely at the center of our social policy. 
Uh, so it's a, ultimately a very reasonable thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Tom, how will this help us reach our ultimate goal of abolishing ab abortion in our nation altogether? You know, that's what we've been fighting for for so long. How is this a, a tangible and effective next step? Well, again, you know, because of the church's prioritization of the family, it says the family is really the center of society, that fundamental unit, uh, by making birth free for, for all, we have the chance to say that uh, this is a, a default for America, so that the choice that some have to go through, whether they're abortion-minded, you know, the mother or father, or whether they could just use a little bit of help, uh, we have a chance to say that, yeah, we're all in this together. We provision goods for the public all the time, whether it's mundane things like roads and bridges or yeah. public schools uh, or benefits through the military. And so this is in that tradition, in the American tradition, of recognizing the things that are actually in the common good and that serve all people. Yeah, right. And Tom, we have a little bit more time left. We've talked to a couple of people for this episode about if they think making birth free is yeah. the most logical thing to do. So what would you say to people who think there might be other ways to incentivize people to have children? Why, why is this really the best way in your view? There are so many things that the government can do that we can do through the state, right? Many people tend to have the view uh, on the right today, still an older view, I think a view that uh, has, the time has come and gone for its, its value, mm -hmm. which is that deregulation is the most important thing that the right, conservatives, Catholics can do when it comes to government. Uh, but when it comes to the priority of solidarity and subsidiarity, frankly, for something like the American family, mm -hmm. the, the greatest threat that we face today is not centralization, and therefore we don't need deregulation, the greatest threat we face today is disintegration, the disintegration of families. Mm. And so with state policy that supports the family, that makes life a default at whatever age a family is, uh, that transforms the culture, just as we've seen in countries like Europe. And you know, I have a friend in the, in the military who told me uh, that she, when she had her first kid, when she was on active service, she paid a total of $45 to, to have her child wow. to give birth. When she was out of the military, she paid over $5,000 you know, in out-of-pocket costs and all sorts of things that insurance didn't cover. Unbelievable. We have a policy today through the ACA and through federal, federal health care spending that says that abortion, contraception in various cases has to be covered. Well, we think making birth free is a very sensible thing in that paradigm. Right. I would love to get rid of those evil things today. Uh, but in the paradigm we have, making birth free just makes sense. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for pointing that out and for all your knowledge on this. Really appreciate you joining us. Tom Shakely of AUL. Such a pleasure. And that does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. Or send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.